0: This is episode 316 about the power of performance psychology to make training a consistent habit, boost your confidence and mental toughness, and how you can get started today. Welcome to the Strength Running podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the goal of this show, strengthrunning.com and our YouTube channel is to help you better understand the process of improvement. Because when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a much better runner. If you're new here, welcome. I'm the head coach of Strength Running, formerly a 239 marathoner and a monthly columnist for Trail Runner Magazine. On this podcast, I share my insights on the sport and speak with the world's smartest subject matter experts to help you improve. I'm happy to connect anytime, so feel free to email me or you can send me a message on Instagram or YouTube. Now I wanna thank our partners who support the show. They're offering you some great discounts to take your health and performance to the next level. First is our newest sponsor, Lagoon. They make the most comfortable pillow I've ever tried. And since I know that sleep is the number one recovery tool that we have at our disposal as runners, I'm taking it a lot more seriously. I took their sleep quiz. It's only two minutes and so you can take yours at lagoonsleep.com slash And I was paired with their Fox pillow that I'm loving. Last week, I actually laid down in bed and I started sleeping on my other non-lagoon pillow. I was tossing and turning and I just quickly realized that I'm way more comfortable now that I'm using the Fox pillow. It makes a big difference. Since you can add or remove the fill to get your alignment just right, it's a great way to optimize the most important way you can become a better runner that isn't training your sleep. Take your rest and recovery to the next level with Lagoon and get 15% off your purchase with code STRENGTHRUNNING. Just go to lagoonsleep.com slash STRENGTHRUNNING. Next is Element, a delicious sugar-free, high-sodium electrolyte mix. And listen up, I'm actually running a big giveaway this month on my Instagram page, JasonFitz1, for a free four-month supply of Element. That's 120 servings plus a Nike hat and Elements Salty AF water bottle. Check out my pinned Instagram post to enter. Now, I love this stuff because it's perfect for endurance runners who are sweating a lot, drinking a lot of water, and because of that, can be susceptible to imbalances. My favorite flavor is probably either watermelon or citrus, and you didn't hear it from me, but these can also be used to make a very tasty sugar-free margarita or the next morning to help you feel better if you've had too many, of those margaritas. Electrolytes play a key role in helping you avoid dehydration, dizziness, cramps, and tiredness, especially after long runs or workouts. An element is used by the military, law enforcement, professional sports teams, and they're the official hydration partner of Team USA Weightlifting. Get your free sample pack with any purchase at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning, and they'll let you try every flavor. That's drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning for your free sample pack. And don't miss the giveaway on my Instagram page. My guest today is Jen Schumacher, formerly the assistant director of the performance psychology program at West Point Military Academy and currently is the mental performance consultant for Northwestern University's football team. She's also a professional speaker and provides individual training for elite performers, ultra endurance athletes, and Fortune 100 executives. This conversation is an introduction to sports psychology, focusing on broad principles such as adherence, how do you make certain strategies a habit, the relationship between mental skills like confidence and mental toughness, and some of the more important aspects of sports psych for endurance runners, like how you can get started. For more detailed and actionable mental skills training, enroll in our complimentary mindset course at strengthrunning.com brain. You'll learn the mechanics of building these mental skills and how to make them second nature so you can thrive. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Jen Schumacher. Hey, Jen, I'm excited about this. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Jason. It's great to be on the show and I really appreciate you reaching out.
0: Yeah, so you are the Assistant Director of the Performance Psychology Program at West Point. And I'd love to start by talking more about your work there. Um, So what's the goal of the Performance Psychology Program there?
1: So the Performance Psychology Program at West Point is housed in the Center for Enhanced Performance. And to me, I think it's, I mean, I'm biased, but I think it's one of the coolest things that we offer at the Academy. It actually started way back in the early 90s. Um, my, my now boss, Dr. Nate Zinzer, was the subject matter expert brought in to provide sports psychology services to Army football players. At the time, there was um, a colonel in the psychology department that was learning a little bit more about sports psychology, which is really a blend of the academic disciplines of psychology and kinesiology, and realized, hey, this stuff could actually help our football players win and beat Navy, which is what it's all about, right? Uh, No, but in all seriousness, like develop these skills on the fields of friendly strife and then apply these skills of mental performance out to their duties as officers in the army. So that's how the Center for Enhanced Performance, as it's now called, was born and the performance psychology program within that. Since then, though, it's expanded quite a bit. um, And now there's four of us that work in the performance psychology program. And then the Center for Enhanced Performance has a few other programs, academic excellence uh, being one of those. Um, And so now we service the entire Corps of Cadets. It's not just Army football. Any cadet at the academy can come in and work with any one of the four trainers in mental performance. And we help them use mental skills that we know work from applied sports psychology. But we apply those skills to all three pillars of performance. So academic, military, and physical performance. Every cadet's an athlete, so they're all participating in a sport. For about a third of them, that's NCAA Division I Athletics. But then there's also club and intercollegiate, or sorry, intramural athletics at the academy as well. Uh, So the goal is really to, one, teach cadets that are looking to enhance performance, different mental skills, and then two, help them apply these mental skills in other areas of performance because we know that as Army officers, they're going to be using these skills and teaching them to their soldiers.
0: I really love that sports psychology principles are broadly applicable to other areas of your life. So, you know, if you go and you meet with a sports psychologist or you take a course or something like that, y- you can then use that to improve your athletic performance and the way that you mentally relate to the sport. But then that also really helps you in so many other areas of life. So I think it's so broadly valuable. Uh, and, and I one of the reasons why... I'm talking with you today is because I I really want runners to understand the value of sports psychology, performance psychology, and and being able to apply it to to their running. Now, it's interesting, you guys work with, you know, the the non athletes, and then the athletes at West Point. Is there any difference uh, between the two groups? I'm just curious if you focus on slightly different things with two very different groups of people.
1: Well, actually, Jason, just a point of clarification. uh, One thing we say at the Academy is every cadet's an athlete. In fact, since its inception in 1802, every cadet that's come through the military academy has been required to participate in a sport. So for approximately a third of those cadets, that's Division I collegiate athletics. And then the other cadets are either participating in the next tier of competitiveness, so intercollegiate uh, club sports, and then the rest of the cadets are participating in intramurals, So in addition to their four-year degree program, their military training duties, they're also participating in a sport. Now, that being said, not every cadet prioritizes the athletic pillar as much as say your highly competitive club athletes or your division one athletes. So they might say have strengths in the military or academic pillars or all three. Some of them are highly excellent in all of those areas. So For us, it really depends what the cadets coming in are looking for. They're primarily self-referred. So they come to us seeking to enhance performance in a particular area or multiple areas. And so we do our best to meet the cadets where they're at. Now, with the athletes, we tend to get a little bit more face time because the four of us performance psychology trainers are placed with different uh, teams that want sports psychology and performance psychology for their programs. So for example, I work with six of the D1 programs And so I meet with them on a group level, and then individuals will come in and do their individualized programs too. But I think the point you're making about these skills being applicable in all areas of life is a really crucial one. Um, I know, for for example, in my private practice, while I certainly work with some athletes, I actually work with just as many executives as I do athletes uh, and other folks that are in non-traditional performance domains. And I think that some of these mental skills for high performance play out just as much on the fields of friendly strife as they do in the operating room, in the board room, in the war room. So when we're talking about things like confidence, effective thinking, goal setting, imagery, relaxation, managing energy levels, dealing with pre-performance nerves, these are skills that like even you and I can probably think of ways in which we apply these throughout our daily lives, not just in our respective sports.
0: Right. I have three children. So that certainly applies (laughs) to me. And uh, that resonates with me. And thanks for letting me know more about kind of West Point and how they operate athletics there. uh, It's very interesting that everyone's required to engage in athletics in some way. Now, we're talking to endurance runners today. And I think our sport is very much has a strong mental component, partly because it does require us to be alone with our thoughts for extended periods of time, but also because we have to push ourselves to a maximum effort during any kind of race that we're running. Uh, but we don't necessarily work on our mental fitness as much as I think we could or we should. How would you recommend, uh, you know, your adult runner introduce themselves to some of these performance psychology principles that are so valuable to getting as much out of your athletic pursuits as possible, but also that have that broad uh application to the rest of your life.
1: I think that's a great point. It's tough to get started. And I hear your point about an endurance sport. I mean, this is definitely true in the world of endurance and marathon swimming, as well as ultra running, it sounds like, and running. Um, it's definitely a neglected part of our performance, especially as working adults who have careers and families and other obligations. And it's hard to pay attention to this thing that's not you know, visible. It's not front of mind. Um. And, and we don't really see it play out, although we know that it makes a difference. In fact, a mentor and, and a colleague of mine that works, uh, works with athletes at Mizzou uh, used to say that really all sport and performance psychology is, is think and write in sport. Uh, and to me, what that indicates is whether you work on the mental game or not, there is a mental game. So even if we're not working on it, our thoughts, our emotions, our experiences will impact our performance. And if we're not careful in cultivating that response, then sometimes those things undermine our performance and we get in our own way. A question I often ask athletes or performers that I work with is, how often do you beat yourself? And what I mean by beat yourself is when you show up to the start of the line, right? When you're lining up for the race start, have you already taken yourself out mentally? Maybe you're running over excuses in your mind of things that you didn't do in your training, miles that you didn't log. The, the night's sleep that didn't go well the night before, or the breakfast that didn't go as planned, the struggles you've been having with managing you know, remote learning and other things at home, or, or something else. Perhaps it's looking to other runners and looking at how they look fitter than you or how you're not so confident in your abilities. We sometimes take ourselves out and beat ourselves before the race even begins. So I think it starts with that baseline level of awareness that the things we say to ourselves, the thoughts, emotions, and experiences we have, have an impact on performance. And once we develop that self-awareness, then it's about starting to educate and learn. Uh, to me, there's some really awesome podcasts, books, and articles that can help folks just kind of get their toes wet and start, you know, testing the waters in terms of mental performance. Um, a few of my favorites that I often recommend and are and I'm constantly loaning out of my personal library in the office when we're in person, of course, uh, are books like Heads Up Baseball. I know it says baseball in the title, but it's really about. Mental skills of sport and life in general. That was written by my mentor Ken Revisa. Um, I absolutely love Carol Dweck's book, Mindset. Cinder Campo- Campoff's book, Beyond Grit, uh, The Inner Game of Tennis. Uh, and then, if you're more of a you know a commuter and you know that you're going to listen to things rather than spend time reading, I really like um, you know the, the author of Beyond Grit. Cinder Kampoff also has this podcast called The High Performance Mindset Podcast. Uh, Justin Sue and Mike Gervais also have really awesome podcasts that talk about sports psychology principles, how they apply to elite performers, um, and and ways that we can use those in our own daily performances. Because we're all performing, regardless of whether it's running uh, as a cadet student-athlete uh, or an executive, right? We're all engaging in performances day in, day out. So taking care of that piece of our development makes sense.
0: Yeah, I love that. And, and the point that you brought up that I want to reiterate, I think it's so excellent, is the fact that you know, you are practicing a mental game, whether or not you're actively working on it or not. And and I think every runner intuitively understands this because, you know, we have all lined up on the start of a race and said to ourselves, I don't think this is going to go well. And and then Mm -hmm. listed, you know, a million reasons why, you know, we might fail. Or the other classic example is in the middle of a race, you know, all those negative thoughts that come into our head and our relationship with our self-talk, You know, there's so many different ways that this manifests, but, you know, we can think about our mental game as something that we're just going to let happen. Or I I think it's helpful to frame it as something that if we work on it, it's just going to work better for us on race day or when we're doing a long run or a workout.
1: Absolutely. Great points, Jason. I couldn't agree more. Now, when runners
0: are, or really any athlete is is starting their journey with sports psychology and, you know, getting started with things. Are there any common mistakes that you see athletes make when they try to start applying it to their training?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So certainly I think one of the most common mistakes or or myths that I see is that, um, and certainly I had this myth, actually, when I was exposed to sports psychology in uh, undergraduate in college. I was a kinesiology major. And so I was really just kind of exploring all the subdisciplines. And I took my first sports psych class. And as a competitive swimmer at the time, I heard about these skills and I just wasn't sold. I was such a, uh, you know, a skeptic. And in my mind, I was like, well, Jen, just swim faster, try harder. <laughs> Isn't it more just a physical thing, right? It's you against the clock. And that makes sense to a certain extent. But what I really hadn't realized was... The number of times that I took myself out of the race in situations like what you're describing in a running race, either self-doubt before even starting and getting off the blocks or, or, or over the race line, uh, or things that arise during the race, other competitors passing you or not hitting your splits the way you anticipated, just other you know experiences of self-doubt and ineffective self-talk where we do take ourselves out. So once I kind of applied it a little bit more to my personal swimming and coaching, I was coaching at the time. I started seeing what a massive impact this was having. So to me, that's mistake number one is not recognizing the impact that the mental game has on our performance. And like you said, whether we're working on it or not, it's going to have an impact. Another common mistake I'll see is athletes that check the box, right? They, They read a book or they listen to a podcast or they meet with a sports psych coach just once and they're like, all right, been there, done that. I'm good to go. Uh, and they feel like they've kind of taken care of that. But the way that I view the mental game is a little bit more of an educational approach, right? It's sort of like a strength program or a nutrition plan or your sleep schedule. It's the foundation of the house upon which your physical training is built. It's a wellness component. So if you're only doing it just on occasion, let's say you're only using imagery skills the night before the race, but you're not doing it at all in training, or you're only working uh, breathing strategy to reduce pre-performance nerves right before the start of a race, but you're not doing it practicing that skill in training, um, or you're only working on your self-talk as you walk into the boardroom for a big client meeting, but you're not practicing that on a day-to-day basis at work, then those aren't going to be well-refined skills, right? The equivalent would be deciding that I'm preparing for this race, I'm, I'm working up towards a half marathon, I've got my, you know, four or five month training program. And I'm also really interested in seeing if I can leverage principles from strength and conditioning to enhance my performance this time around so I can get a little bit more speed and power and muscular endurance. So I think the week before the big race, I'm going to do my first and only strength and conditioning session. And we all know how that would feel and how that would go, right? And it would be ludicrous to think that that would work for us. Yet sometimes that's the way we approach the mental game right? Just a one and done. I'm just going to try it out once. And then I've got that skill for life. But I think the mental game is more like an onion, right? Each time we have a difficult workout or training session or a race that either goes, you know, not according to plan, or there's some adversity, we're peeling back layers of that onion and learning a little bit more about ourselves throughout the process. So to me, the mental game is something that we consistently work on. And it works best for us when we're integrating it into training throughout a program.
0: Yeah, the way I think about it is exactly that, you know, just like you're if you want to be a good runner, of course, you have to run consistently, your training has to be consistent over time, as does, you know, your sleep every night, as does your strength training, and as does your sports psychology practice, whatever strategies you're using in your training. Uh, and, and I think that's really important. Um, I do want to hit quickly on something that you brought up when you said you first started studying this topic. And you know, you have this idea that, well, what if I just try harder? It is just, <laughs> I need to swim faster. And mm-hmm. that completely resonates with me as someone who started running in high school and and really never gave sports psych its proper due uh, because I didn't recognize how valuable it was. And, and I had that same mindset. I just thought it was all about willpower. Can you talk a little bit about willpower and, and your thoughts on, you know, just trying harder?
1: Absolutely. So I I completely agree. I couldn't empathize more. I was totally this kid, this young swimmer in high school and club athletics. And it really wasn't until college when I started experiencing a higher level of pressure, greater degrees of uncertainty. Of course, it's about that age where the competition gets a little bit tougher. And you have the tendency to compare yourself or maybe doubt yourself and look at others training programs, or maybe you're not hitting the cuts or making the travel team or whatever the case may be. And it was that level of pressure that I really struggled with. And I hadn't really encountered that until later in my swimming years. And that's when I realized there's something to this, right? I'm, I'm not handling these races the same way that I was when I was younger and a little bit more naive. Um, and, and I need to address this, right? Otherwise, I'm just taking myself out of the race before it even begins. And while I certainly did that sometimes when I was younger, it wasn't with the same consistency and I didn't notice those trend lines, And I think with a little bit more growth and maturity and awareness, I started recognizing the importance of the mental game. So, uh, you know, it was definitely an evolution. And I hadn't even heard about sports psychology at that time, although I wish I had. It really wasn't until my last year in college that I found it. Um, And even though I was a skeptic, I decided, you know, why don't I just apply this to my racing, my training? And at the time, I was no longer pool swimming. I had had a really tough injury and and left the sport, But then I returned and rehabbed and got back uh, into swimming, but in a different way. I got into ocean racing. And so I was an ocean swimmer. I was training for just short to mid-range, open water, rough water swims, and kind of almost used that training as my personal laboratory to apply these mental skills and decide for myself, does this work? I was also coaching at that time. And so I would work the mental game into my coaching and teach it to athletes through the coaching and the sets that I was delivering on the pool deck. And man, the difference was just, it was so clear. It was night and day, both in my own performance and the performance of the athletes I was privileged to work with and learn from. And that's when I realized this is something that I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to learn more about it personally, but I also want to be able to teach this and help others because it does seem to have such a huge impact. And to me, that was just such a pivotal and exciting moment in my career path.
0: Yeah, I think the brain is arguably the most important muscle we have. And to ignore it is to ignore a large reservoir of untapped potential in not only our athletic pursuits, but our lives as well. Now, Jen, you and I have talked a little bit about consistency a couple of times throughout our conversation so far. And I know that consistency, adherence to a, a sports psych program, or even a running training plan is often a big issue among runners. And I assume most other folks, uh, because I think that we, we intellectually understand that it's productive to work on our mindset. But it's also one of the last things that we actually do, if at all. How can you recommend that we make sports psych training a more consistent habit? How can we build it into our training and make it part of the training rather than something that we check the box on and do once in a while?
1: That's a great question, Jason. And and the last thing the mental game should be is an entirely different thing that you have to add a layer on to what you're already doing. It should be integrated. And I think it works best when it's integrated into the training we're already doing. But let me back up a little bit because where I usually like to start is reflecting on your last race. So if you're listening now, think back to your last race, the entire training that you did leading up to it, everything that went into it, what was going on for you before the race began on race day, and and think about the outcome, and at the end of it, how you felt about it. And now being a little bit more removed, reflect back on that entire training block and race day. The way I see it is most sports, and running is no different, can be broken up into different pillars that go into performance. There's the physical training pillar, right? How fit you are, how your physical program went, how much you stuck to it. There's the mental training pillar, right? Your mindset, not just on race day, but even more so importantly, uh, you know, day in, day out. And then there's the wellness component, right? How much you took care of your body, how much attention you gave to recovery, to sleep, to nutrition. If you think back to that performance and the outcome, and you think back to all three of those pillars, which one if or, or which ones were lacking, right? In which areas did you achieve success, right? You did everything that you set out to do or, or near close to everything you set out to do. And you're really pleased with how you took care of that pillar. And then which ones maybe didn't get the attention that they deserved or held you back on race day. And for most of us, we're really good at sticking to the physical training program. We can see it. We can log it. We can feel it in our bodies. We have the satisfaction of having accomplished it when we're done. But it's those other two pillars that we don't give as much attention to. And sometimes we don't have the time to do it. Now, the mental training component, I think, is pretty interesting because we can work that into what we're doing. It could be something as simple as driving to work one day, listening to a podcast, uh, and then that evening when you're going for your long run, applying a skill from that podcast in that training run that you're doing, Uh, or something as simple as after the run, getting home and before making dinner for you and the family when you're showering and changing clothes, having that moment of reflection and thinking through how your approach to that training one run went, where you grew as an athlete, what adversity you hit, how you grew from that run, and then maybe a few different areas for improvement or attention next time. So it doesn't have to be this overly complicated thing. I mean, we could certainly get into some of the more involved strategies like sport journaling, but I don't know about you, I'm probably a lot like your listeners where I'm trying to train for really long distance events, but also trying to work full time and take care of other obligations. And I just don't have time to do it all. So I like approaches where I can integrate the mental game into training. And so sometimes that looks like the drive home for me after a pool swim or after an open water workout, or even even shorter, just while I'm changing and segmenting my day, taking off the athlete gear. And putting on the worker clothes or putting on the family home life clothes. And to me, that's an incredible opportunity to let go of the practice. And what I mean by that is reflecting on it, focusing on what went well that day, how I grew, what progress I made, what the improvements were. That's Those are strategies to build confidence. And then reflecting on some of the components of that training session that maybe didn't go well or didn't go according to plan, but reflecting on them, not to beat myself up, but in a way that gives me excitement And motivation and optimism about working on them tomorrow. So that's a really important deliberate strategy that I'll go through at the end of each training practice. And it's worked into my routine, I'm already going to change and shower, right? I'm already going to do those things. So I'm not adding any additional time. I'm just practicing a little bit of awareness and reflection into that habit.
0: It sounds like if you're mindful about what you're learning about sports psychology, and you conscientiously try to integrate it into your, your training sessions, or your life in a certain way, whether it's your commute home, whether you're showering, your mind is wandering, and you have some time to really uh, dedicate to reflection or uh, thinking more deeply about some of these, it seems like, you know, the, the hardest part is just almost establishing a routine or some sort of habit of reflection. So you, you can actually apply what you're learning.
1: Absolutely. And reflection is just one part of the mental game, right? There's also the preparation process. So my routine for getting ready for a training session is equally similar. So on the front end, as I'm putting on the swimsuit, or as you're putting on the running clothes and tying the shoes, right, to me, that's a process that involves intentionally reflecting on what I want to get out of this training session, so that I'm not just logging the miles, or in my case, the yardage, um, although sometimes it's miles, but it's not just about the physical training. It's about what do I want to get out of today? And, and certainly that might be technique based. So maybe you want to work on some aspect of form or cadence, but it also might be an opportunity to reflect on hmm, today. I really want to work on effective self-talk. I want to work on being more mindful of doubts and lacking self-confidence and replacing that with more effective thinking strategies to enhance performance. Or maybe today I really want to tackle something that I don't like to do. Maybe you don't like, you know, uphills. I've worked with plenty of runners where that's a mental block or sometimes downhills. But maybe today I want to approach uphills in a different way. Uh, So one example is is my dad. So both my parents are runners. They've each run uh, several marathons, including a few Boston marathons apiece. Um, And my dad, well, there's two interesting stories about my dad that I'll share with you today. I hope he doesn't mind. Um, But one is that he doesn't love hills, he says he always feels slow running up hills. And of course, there's like the mechanical physiological explanation, you should be slower going up a hill. Um, But I challenged him one day, suggesting that maybe you're slower going up hills, because you know, a hill is coming, and you believe yourself to be slower going up hills. And there's this thing called self fulfilling prophecy. So maybe you're talking yourself into being slower going up the hill, and making it this, you know, drudgery experience, rather than, looking at it in a way that can help you uh, maybe advance a position or take over another runner and so he used a strategy I call affirmations or a keyword or a belief statement so he decided every time he hit the base of a hill he was just gonna s- repeat the keyword word float so the term float was meaningful to him because it made him feel lighter on his feet and he started increasing his cadence and sure enough he started actually using this affirmation float, to help him stay more positive about uphills. And lo and behold, his uphill running improved, and it was no longer this terrible, awful experience that he had to get through. It was a part of the race where he could actually make up ground and exercise strength. Another fun story about him and self-fulfilling prophecy is he has this belief that the first two minutes of every run, training run or, or otherwise, is always miserable. He's in such oxygen debt that a couple of times I've gone running with him, he doesn't talk the first two minutes at all. But then sure enough, the clock hits two minutes, and he snaps out of it immediately. He's totally fine. And back to his normal self where, you know, he can easily carry on a conversation running with me, which I know I'm a much slower runner than he is. So it's not a difficult task for him. But no matter what the first two minutes, he just suffers. He hates it. And I started wondering, hmm, there's probably some physiological truth to that, right? When we first start out on a training run, our cardiovascular activation has increased, but our respiration hasn't matched that level yet. So we're not actually getting enough oxygen to our working muscles. It takes a little bit to catch up. We call that oxygen debt. But he also has this really strong belief and potentially a self-fulfilling prophecy belief that it takes two minutes for this to happen. So one day, unbeknownst to him, um, I told him, that we were at two minutes when we were at like, you know, 145. So not so far so early that he would notice being an experienced runner. Um, and I said, you know, two minute mark, how you feeling? And <laughs> he said he was feeling great. Uh, and, you know, sure enough, at 145, he got right back into his, you know, normal, perky, happy running self. And I just thought it was such an incredible thing, this moment of, wow, he, he really, you know, I'm sure there's some physiological truth to it, no doubt. But there's also a little bit of the mind game at play here, where he believes the first two minutes are going to suck, therefore the first two minutes suck. So even just little tricks like that, like challenging your own beliefs, your own limitations, your own expectations of what's going to happen, and almost trying to divorce yourself from those expectations and letting the experience unfold rather than placing that subjective truth on what's going to happen. Because Sometimes we set ourselves up uh, in a way that you know, doesn't necessarily have to be as bad as it is.
0: Well, Jen, I hope your father doesn't email me with uh, (laughs) complaints that you're telling these stories.
1: (laughs) uh, Oh, he's an open book.
0: Well, um, (laughs) that's so funny. Uh, No, thank you for sharing those stories. And and I think they resonate with a lot of runners. They certainly resonate with me because I do feel like we often pigeonhole ourselves into believing certain things, either about running or about ourselves that maybe have a shred of truth to them, but aren't necessarily 100% true. So like this two minute thing with your father, you know, it's very interesting that, you know, if he thought he was at two minutes at a minute 45, all of a sudden he feels great. And so clearly there's a huge mental component to that. Um, and, and I'll share a story too, just on the topic of uh, affirmations or uh, mantras that you use with yourself after my first marathon, which did not go well for me at all. And uh, I think part of the reason was because I was just a, a mental basket case, it was my first race 20 at 26.2 miles. And I had a really hard time running hard for hours and hours. And my second marathon, where I, I really, you know, it was like, three years later, I was really hoping for a comeback. This was like my vengeance on the marathon when I had gotten hurt after my first. And my mantra during that second marathon was relax, because I did not want to be anxious or nervous or freaking out a little bit over how I felt and how much distance was left in the race. And I found that that affirmation was so helpful for me because it kept my mind in the right place. When I was at mile eight, mile 12, mile 14, you know, early Stages of the marathon where you know you need to stay calm, cool, and collected, and you can't be you know losing yourself to anxiety at that moment. So I've personally used some mantras, and and I can really attest to how effective they can be.
1: Oh, absolutely! I think um, you know affirmations or mantras can be so incredibly powerful. But here's another example, Jason, where we have to practice them in training, um, and. You know, I'm I'm sure that that mantra of relax was something that came to you as you were preparing. Um, And certainly we can use brand new experiences like that in a race. But think about how much more powerful they can be when we associate them and condition them during our training runs.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. and And it was something that I practiced. Uh, particularly during, you know, long runs where you're ending the run at goal marathon pace. And, you know, you're very uncomfortable because you've already been running for two and a half hours. So I I do think that it's very uh, effective to practice over time. You know, we always say don't try anything new on race day. And it's certainly true for some of these skills and principles that we're talking about. Um, One thing I did want to ask you about, Jen, is Uh, something that you brought up near the beginning of the conversation, I didn't have a chance to follow up with you on it, but it was how you can compare yourself to others and how that can be, uh, debilitating from a mental perspective. Can you talk a little bit more about the comparison trap and what that does to an athlete?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, comparison to others is a natural instinct and something that we all do as humans. It's, it's part of our nature. Um, And it comes from a place, I think, in most cases, of wanting to be the best version of ourselves, right? We often look at others that maybe have something we have not yet obtained. And we look to that as a source of, man, that would be really cool if I could achieve that too. But after that, the follow on thought kind of diverges, right? And unfortunately, for most of us, it goes into, gosh, why aren't I better? Or why can't I do that? Or why don't I look that fit? Or why is it so much easier for him or her to log those miles? And I think that's where that comparison thought kind of becomes a little bit debilitating and impacts confidence in a negative way. As soon as we start getting into weaponizing the other person in a way that beats us up, we've got to cut it out. We've got to recognize that, hey, I'm only seeing a part of the picture. I don't know what their experiences are actually like, but... At the end of the day, I can't control what they do. I can only control me. I can't control what goes around, uh, goes on around me, but I can only control how I choose to respond to it. So one thing we try to help uh, cadets with, and I, I work with a lot of performers on, is if you're going to compare, do it in a healthy way. So if you're looking at someone who's maybe a little bit better than you, which is the ideal model, someone like you, but slightly more advanced on that continuum of novice to expert right? That's someone that you can look to for ideas and inspiration. And so when we look to others in a comparative way, we want to look for things like, how can I do a little bit about what they're doing and then apply that to me? So if they have some level of success that I want, let me use that and backwards plan from there. That's the blueprint. If they're like me, but a little bit more successful, then I can take some of what they've done and apply it to my life where it makes sense. And I think that's a much more healthy, effective way to compare. And if we can't compare nicely, don't compare at all. And what I mean by that is if we're going to constantly beat ourselves up with the success of others, it's really getting us stuck in a fixed mindset, not a growth mindset. So we want to reorient the conversation back around us, right? What can I do given the context that I find myself in right now?
0: Right. That's really important. And I think I think the, the some of the strategies here about comparing yourself to others in a healthier way is really important. Because like you said, we all compare ourselves to other people, it's human nature, we're probably going to have a really hard time stopping that practice. So understanding some more effective ways of doing so uh, can be really productive for us as runners. Um, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about, you know, some specific mental skills that a lot of runners want to develop some things like, you know, mental toughness is a big one confidence, for example but they're clearly related. And I think developing one of these skills helps with building the related skill. When you're working with athletes, do you recommend athletes silo off each skill and work on it individually? Or is there a more holistic path to building these
1: skills? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure you can silo these, <laughs> these different mental skills off, Jason, to be honest, I think they're all so interrelated. Uh, You know, If I work on my confidence and I practice affirmations, belief statements, effective self-talk, thought stopping, if I'm working the filter at the end of each practice and going through that routine, my confidence will grow. And if my confidence grows, then heck, I'm going to be more mentally tough, meaning the ability to bounce back from adversity. If I believe in myself, which that's what confidence is, right? A sense of certainty in oneself. If I have a higher level of that then of course, I'm going to be able to bounce back from adversity. And similarly, if I work on mental toughness, and I show myself that I'm capable of getting back up on my feet after I've gotten kicked down, that's going to help grow confidence. So yes, these things are absolutely interrelated. And while certainly the approach when I'm working with an individual is to figure out kind of what are their strengths and what are their growth areas, and then we'll tackle those first. Um, you know, doing that inevitably enhances other mental skills. And so we we do take this in a more integrative approach. Um, and I encourage your listeners to as well.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's very encouraging, because, you know, it's not like, you know, if we're looking at five mental skills or something like that, we don't have to work on five mental skills, you know, separately, we can work on some of these broad principles, and you'll end up building and developing a lot of these skills at the same time, because they're interrelated, because they all relate to each other. And so I I feel like that is an encouraging thing for runners to learn. uh, Because it it takes it honestly, I think it takes less work.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I hear a lot of people talk about, okay, just get 1% better each day. Uh, And while I think in theory, that's a really great point. In practice, that's really tough to measure. So one thing I like to do is get down to what is like the actionable, measurable daily goal. So if I am, let's say, working on mental toughness or I am working on self-talk, can I end each day reflecting on, say, a daily goal of catching an ineffective thought three times and reframing it? So if I've gotten to the end of the day and I've practiced that reframing strategy three times that day, I've been aware of an ineffective thought and restructured it in the moment, then that's a success. I can say, yes, check, I did that daily goal. And if I do that over time, then I'm building effective thinking, I'm building confidence, I'm building mental toughness. Let's say my goal is being more mindful and attentive. If maybe I can practice one minute of mindfulness each morning uh, and also put my phone away for family meals and just be with my family, be where my feet are. And when I'm at work, being at work, when I'm training, being training. Um, if I can execute that each and every day, then I'm building those skills of attention, control, and mindfulness. And so to me, that's getting 1% better every day is setting a couple of achievable daily goals and creating habits around them so that they're easy to execute and they build on themselves.
0: Yeah, I like the fact that they do build on themselves so that you know, you're know you not going to be working on the same things all the time and you're going to progress in your sports psychology practice with yourself. I think that's great. Now, when you work with uh, someone, you mentioned evaluating their strengths and their weaknesses. Are you someone who wants to improve someone's weaknesses, bolster their strengths, or is there a hybrid approach that you find really effective?
1: It's a great question. And I I think we have to do both. Um, I I really appreciate the strengths-based approach of focusing on what folks are good at and really strengthening and bolstering those skills. But I also think it would be a disservice to not address growth areas. So I usually take an approach that's blended. And I almost always start by asking a couple of questions to get at awareness and developing that skill to self assess. So my favorite questions to start with are, what, what is running like for you when you're going well? And then what is running like for you when you're not going well? And then we get kind of these two comparative lists of all the things that are happening and going on for you when you're at your best, and then everything that's going on for you when you're not at your best. And to me, I think that's where we can find some of these differences, because as much as we'd love to be in a flow state all the time and just run in the zone, I mean, what percentage of your races are you in the zone, Jason? Very little. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe like 5 10% if you're lucky, right? So we want to address the other... 80, 90, 95% where it's a grind, it's tough. And in my experiences, the longer the events, the less you're in the zone, the more of a grind it is. So we have to practice these skills, not just when things are going well, but when things aren't going well. And honestly, I think those are the more valuable training sessions. We, we think that physically too as coaches, but mentally, some of those sessions where you're just grinding the whole time, you want to quit, you want to give up, you want to succumb to negative thinking, self-doubt, pity parties, and oh, woe is me thinking. But you're able to reframe and constantly reverse that thinking. And you do it once, and then you go right back to self-doubt and pity parties. And then you reframe again, and then back to self-doubt and pity parties. And you just do this the whole run. And sometimes that can feel like a mental failure. But really, I think that's tremendous growth. And you're flexing that mental muscle the entire time.
0: And you do get better at that over time, for sure. It is something where, you know, the more and more you beat back those negative thoughts, the better you become at it. And I I do think the less frequent you have to do it, uh, because you're just teaching your brain more effective and productive ways of thinking about running. So I really love that. Um, Now, Jen, I'd love to step away from all the some of this theory and and some of these actionable strategies for just a moment and acknowledge the fact that you are an ultra-endurance swimmer. You have mentioned that, that you have a background in swimming, but I, I want our listeners to understand that you are you you've swam the 28-mile length of the LA Bay, the Strait of Gibraltar, two Catalina Channel crossings, many other accomplishments. And I'd love to know a little bit more about, you know, how your work currently, right now, with some of your athletic pursuits is affecting those pursuits. I mean, do you pull from your work constantly to help your performance in these ultra endurance swims?
1: Oh, absolutely, Jason. And and they go hand in hand, quite honestly, if it weren't for my, uh, you know, adventures into marathon swimming, I wouldn't be in this profession right now. It was really that expansion of open water training and getting into longer and longer endurance races that allowed me that personal laboratory to explore different mental skills and strategies, and really fully realize the effectiveness of sports psychology. Um, And in turn, I use all this stuff in my training, and certainly can empathize with the athletes that I work with, because I'm doing it day in, day out, I'm still competing. Um, You know, I, I have an objective this summer that, you know, we'll see with the global pandemic, what happens, it's looking unlikely, but I'm hoping and training to swim the English Channel. Uh, later this summer. Uh, so I'm practicing this stuff day in, day out. And I think that allows me some, some greater empathy and perspective to help provide athletes and performers I work with, with various mental skills. But there's, there's certainly some that I find tremendously important in ultra endurance events, not just swimming, but, you know, ultra running, ultra triathlon, um, ultramans. there's so many different, uh, you know, ultras. and And I know that, you know, long distance, Multi-day events are just exploding, and and rates of participation in that kind of range of distance and duration are expanding. So there's a lot of folks working it, and I think you know some of the mindfulness techniques can be really helpful. So while it's certainly important to have the awareness to uh, the awareness and the discipline to recognize ineffective thinking and reframe it, restructure it, and fight it back, sometimes it's also okay to just embrace that this sucks right now. Uh, and sit with the negative thoughts. Uh, And sometimes the more we fight against it, the bigger it becomes. So there's certainly a time and a place. But I think that those mindfulness techniques of accepting that this is not going well, uh, and then getting into problem solving mode when you can, right? Sometimes once we go through that period of acceptance, right, the start didn't go how I planned, or that, that break stop didn't go the way I wanted it to, or the fuel that I was expecting didn't show up. And so now I'm kind of at a calorie deficit and I need to figure out a way to deal with this. It's going to be really tough to have positive thoughts in that in that kind of situation. And certainly even in shorter distance races, things go incredibly wrong. And I don't think we can always get to positive, but can we at least get to neutral thinking? Can we at least get to problem solving mode where these are the facts? This is a situation. The situation stinks, but here's what I'm going to do about it. I can't control what goes on around me, but I can always control how I choose to respond to it. So personally for me, and no more of a time has that been relevant than now with the closure of pools uh, and the difficulty of getting out and doing the training that I need to do right now. uh, And of course, the uncertainty of the event itself. uh, But those are certainly some things I've been practicing a lot lately.
0: Yeah, I think that's an incredibly valuable approach for runners and I hope things work out for you this summer, Jen. I think Swimming the English Channel is just incredibly exciting. Um, And I just wanted to thank you again today for spending some time with us, talking broadly about sports psychology and how we can make it a more integral part of our lives. I think this is going to be really valuable. So Jen, thanks again for being here. And if folks are interested in uh, following your work, knowing a little bit more about you or what you're up to, I know a lot of your work is behind closed doors, but uh, do you have a home base online where people can touch base with you?
1: Yeah, I do. So I have a website, com. Uh, Schumacher spelled S-C-H-U-M-A-C-H-E-R, like a true German, right? Uh, So jenschumacher.com is where you can find me. I'm I'm not super active on social media, but I do have uh, Twitter at Channel Swim Jen and Instagram at Jen Schumacher, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. So um, your listeners are more than welcome to reach out and continue the conversation on any of those platforms. Um, And Jason, I so appreciate you having me on the show. It's been incredible to learn a little bit about Uh, what you do and your experiences running. And I'm just so grateful and honored to to be here.
0: Well, thank you, Jen. I appreciate that. And I appreciate your expertise today. Thank you. And there we have it, my friends. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to pay it forward, please rate and review the show. You can share it with your running friends or club, or you can invest in a training program for yourself at strengthrunning.com. You can also support the show by supporting our sponsors. Use their links and discount codes to get yourself discounted gear and tell these sponsors they should continue sponsoring this podcast. First, I challenge you to optimize your recovery and get the best sleep of your life with Lagoon, maker of the most comfortable pillow I've ever used. And that's no hyperbole. I am pleasantly surprised every single night when I lie down because this pillow is just perfect for me. I took their sleep quiz to find the right pillow for my body size and my sleeping position at lagoonsleepcom sleep.com strength running. It's only two minutes and you'll find out the type of pillow that will work best for you. I'm using the Fox and absolutely loving it. A big reason why is because it's adjustable. The pillow comes with extra fill so you can adjust it to your unique needs. Last week I lied down in bed and couldn't get comfortable. I soon realized that I wasn't actually using my Lagoon pillow, so I made the switch and quickly fell asleep. It really does make a big difference compared to the $20 pillow I got at Target. And we all know how important sleep is. It's the best recovery tool that you have at your disposal. It's better than compression, ice, heat, massage, or anything else you can think of. Sleep is when the magic happens, and your sleep quality matters. I just finished reading Peter Atiyah's book, Outlive the Science and Art of Longevity, And there's this whole section on sleep as a longevity tool and as a way to reduce the risk of neurodegenerative diseases. Suffice it to say, I'm taking sleep more seriously now and Lagoon is making that a lot easier for me. US Olympic trials marathon qualifier, Caitlin Keen also started using a Lagoon pillow and saw her deep sleep increase by 52 minutes per night. So I'm excited to reap the rewards of better sleep compounded night after night. You can get 15% off your pillow at lagoonsleep.com/strengthrunning with code strengthrunning at checkout. Take their 2-minute sleep quiz, find the right pillow for you, and then adjust it to perfection. Go to lagoonsleep.com/strengthrunning and use code strengthrunning to save 15% today. Next, hook yourself up with some free electrolytes. Our sponsor Element is offering a free gift with your purchase at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning. And this doesn't have to be your first purchase. You're gonna get a sample pack with every flavor so you can try them all before deciding what you like best. Now, we're also running a big giveaway on my Instagram account at jasonfits1. I partnered with Element to give away 120 servings. That's four months if you have a serving every single day, plus a free hat and a water bottle. I hope you win. Now, if you're not familiar, Element is my favorite way to hydrate. They make electrolytes for athletes and low-carb folks with no sugar, no artificial ingredients or colors. I'm now in the habit of giving away boxes of Element at group runs around Denver and Boulder, and everyone loves this stuff. It can also be a helpful way to prevent dehydration when you're running long or you're doing a really tough workout you sometimes feel just really tired or you get headaches, cramps, or sleeplessness after long runs or workouts, you might have an electrolyte imbalance or a deficiency. Boost your performance and your recovery, especially in the heat, with Element. They are the exclusive hydration partner to Team USA Weightlifting and quite a few professional baseball, hockey, and basketball teams are on regular subscriptions. Plus, I admittedly like to have some element if I've had a few adult beverages the night before and I want my morning to feel a little smoother. Check them out at drinklmnt.com strengthrunning. You'll get your free sample pack with your purchase and you can get your hydration optimized for the upcoming season. That's our show, my friends. Thank you for listening and your passion for this amazing sport. Let's connect on Instagram. You can enter our element giveaway and we can all keep progressing. Until next time.